We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this evening to Fellowship Bible Church. We're glad that you're here and still streaming in the back door there. Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles, please. And we're in chapter 15 this evening, 2 Chronicles and the 15th chapter. All right, what we'll do is we'll read the scriptures and then uh, hear testimony of uh, what happened on the, di- well, was it the Diag? It was the Diag, okay, all right, good. And then uh, we'll let the young people go with Mrs. Post if she has conjured up something for them, so, all right. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. Why, why do you think that's so funny? What have you been doing? Watching things that have witches and conjuring spells and all that? Just wondering. <laughs> all right, Second Chronicles 15. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Sounds like some things we talked about this morning and last week again, doesn't it? For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. Boy, isn't that true. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong, and do not let your hands be weak, for you, your work shall be rewarded." And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month and the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered to the Lord at that time seven hundred bulls and seven thousand sheep from the spoil they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Notice the connection of verse 12 to verse 2, please. If you seek him, he will be found by you and... They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. They did what the prophet suggested that they do. Verse 13, And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. 
Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. And so the prophet's words were followed, and the prophecy was fulfilled. Also, verse 16, also he removed Maacah, the mother of Asa, the king, uh, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah, and Asa cut down her obscene image, then crushed and burned it by the brook of Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. He also brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. And there was no war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So notice God had said through the prophet that there was no peace to the one who went out, the one who came in. Now there was peace for from the 15th to the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So two decades of relative calm in the nation. That is a blessing. May we pray for that to be the case in our own nation because things are in a real upheaval the last few years politically and spiritually and so on. So uh, I'm going to invite Drew and Jansen and or Jansen or both of them if they want to. It's going to be Drew. Okay, share a testimony of what happened this afternoon. Go ahead, Drew. All right. I am uh, really happy to be up here. I'm really happy the kids are in here as well. Uh, to give you an idea of uh, what uh, Jansen and I had a chance to do, to do today, um, for the young ones, um, we are concerned for people that do not know God and do not accept Jesus Christ. If they reject, they will go to hell for all eternity. And we love people and we're concerned for them. So we wanted to go out. And so Jansen and I had a chance to go to the Diag. It was our first kind of time, one together, really outside of the art fair. And then uh, before, Jansen and Darius used to go door-to-door, and Ben and I used to go door-to-door, so it was our first kind of new venue going to the Diag. We uh, thought we'd kind of be kind of on the outskirts of the Diag in a shady spot, catching people as they're walking up. We didn't get a lot of action there, so we, we went right into the middle of kind of the main action there. We found some, uh, some people sitting. And so we, we approached. Um, first gentleman we met was a, name, a man named George. And um, George was happy to talk with us. Um, asked if he believed in God. Absolutely. Uh, do, you, uh, do you go to church? Yes, every Sunday. Okay. Um, how often do you read your Bible? Uh, I read 10 chapters a day. Oh. What, uh, what book are you in? Proverbs. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? Uh, Leviticus. Oh, that's a, you'd never hear that as your favorite book. Uh, that's interesting, George. What, what, why is that your favorite book? Oh, because uh, all the prophecies that were being told. Like, mm, I don't know about that, George. <laughs> and so it's this, that's why it's important not to just, you know, start off on the thin level and just start kind of keep diving into questions. And I asked George, if you were to die today, do you believe you go to heaven or hell? I go to heaven. Well, why is that? Because uh, of all, my, all the good things I've done. Okay? So we started talking to him about that, and uh, Jansen brought up, you know, it's not by works, but we have done, but, you know, according to his mercy and by faith, we are saved. And I, I feel like George was really listening. Um, he was very polite. But... Um, and as we talked, he was agreeing 
but didn't really have a lot to kind of push back on. It was a lot of, I agree, okay, yep, yep, okay. That's good, I'm glad, thanks for sharing that, you know, with Jansen. And, uh, and Jansen was like, hey, listen, you know, just we want to make sure this is clear. And so, you know, we talked about, Jansen really did a great job of, uh, you know, saying, listen, it is nothing that we have done works-wise. It's, it's by faith that we are there. And I really want you to understand that, George. All right, you know, thanks, you know. Then we approached, and we probably talked to George for maybe 10 minutes. And then we had a chance to go up, and we had to talk to a man named Kevin. And I bet you we talked to Kevin for, like, at least 45 minutes. It was a good dialogue with Kevin. Kevin was, uh, he grew up Catholic. Uh, Mom was Catholic. Uh, Dad was nothing but would go to Catholic church with them. And then he fell away, and then he got into uh, some different beliefs. Um, but good to talk with us. Um, he does not, uh, I mean, he believes in God. He would call himself spiritual, but not anything else. Um, let me see. He um, doesn't believe in, in heaven or hell. He believes in reincarnation. And uh, so we, we spent a lot of time with Kevin, um, talking to him about about the things of God and talking to him about uh, Scripture, talk to him about that uh, you will. We're all going to die. We're all going to uh, be held accountable, and that's why we're here. As we're concerned, we're concerned for you. And um, he just wasn't concerned to die, um, but he did seem uh, interested in what we had to say. He did express some level of. Um, uh, frustration uh, with the Catholic Church and uh, changing of uh, scripture and that bothered him that they would kind of change some words around I, I think my general sense on him was I think he was a, an individual that's maybe seeking Jansen um, but I think he's kind of seeking the wrong spots does a lot of meditation um, but he was very grateful and thankful for our time uh, he did take um, I gave him a pamphlet, and I wrote my name and phone number on there for him to, to call us. Please, you know, let me know, and Jansen, I'll be happy to meet with you for coffee or talk some more. And, you know, like, like often happens, uh, yeah, it sounds good, but we'll see how it plays out. And then uh, after that, uh, we met a man named uh, Hung uh, from South Korea. And Hung... Uh, had never really heard of God before. And he was kind of, uh, I'm not sure about heaven and hell. Mm. Um, also reincarnation. And so again, uh, we made sure that uh, the gospel was presented. I did have on me a track more general for uh, kids. So I gave that to him to help kind of help kind of explain it better. Um, he wasn't as talkative with us as the other two were. Um, he's there for his post-doctorate. And uh, we got to be sensitive that there's, there's people out there, even in our own country, that just have never heard of God at all. And they have a real understanding. So it's important that we're out there. Um, I did give him, yeah, I said I gave him a track and asked him for a, if he wanted a Bible. Nope, 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 did not want, did not want a Bible. So it's interesting because you know, we've been preparing for this 
for a few weeks now, and even last night I was preparing myself for conversations that had to do a lot with, you know, recent court cases. Uh, but we didn't get one single comment on that at all. But what's interesting, Jansen, is that we had a theme of reincarnation from two individuals. You know, that, you know, that there would be a theme there that, you know, sometimes God just finds something to, to bring up. And, you know, as I was walking away, I was telling Jansen, you know, I wish you think about things sometimes you wish you would have brought up, right? So I wish I would have brought up, you know, it's a point under man wants to die and then the judgment. You know, I wish I could have, I would have thought about that. But, you know, I think um, Jansen did a great job uh, getting the, the word out there and we really made sure we hammered that home, made it crystal clear. Um, I think that's about it. I think we had a good dialogue. I was appreciative of it. Um, anybody have any questions at all? No? Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Drew. We have at least one big fan, huh? I'll take it. <laughs> He'll take it. Now, don't be afraid to ask questions now. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be volunteered for the next time they go out, but you might be, so... <laughs> We'd love to take you along, so we'll let the young people go out to the class that Mrs. Postiff has prepared for them. I already heard one Bible verse recited tonight that did good to my soul. Joel 2.32 was the verse, so okay. Um, well, somebody asked me a Bible question. Actually, it was kind of more of a political slash Bible question a few weeks ago. And uh, so I thought I would address that tonight, and hopefully that person will pick it up because they're not here, so maybe they'll be able to listen later online. But uh, the uh, question was, um, what are your thoughts about how we are to think scripturally about our Second Amendment rights? So this is not a question that I came up with. This is a question I'm answering from one of your ch- our members in the church here. So <clears throat> let's do that. Before we do, though, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help our thinking to be uh, aligned with Scripture. Thank you for this report that Drew has shared uh, and Jansen about their ministry this afternoon and how how we are delighted to hear of this work that uh, your people are doing, the work of the ministry. And we again pray for fruit to come from that. Thank you for their faithfulness. Uh, Seeds planted in three lives which would not have been planted had they not made the effort to do this. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are your thoughts about how we are to think scripturally about our Second Amendment rights? This uh, article is available on the church website for you. It's linked in the normal location uh, where the messages are, but it's one of my blog posts, so it's not in the normal kind of fold format, uh, booklet format that I make for our notes. So first, let me start by understanding the Second Amendment text, because when we talk about the Second Amendment, we have to know what it says. And here's what it says. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I should have Brother James up here teaching this, you know. He's the guy with the legal mind. Um, but we'll see. He'll tell me afterwards how well I did, okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the, uh, there's really like, how could I say? I mean, we could divide it up into different parts, but we have a well-regulated militia. We have being necessary to the security of a free state, 
we have the right of the people to keep and to bear arms shall not be infringed. The phrase being necessary to the security of a free state is a ground or reason clause. Okay, now what I'm doing here is I'm applying exegetical principles to the wording of this text, which is what you have to do to extract the meaning from any text, not just the Bible, but any text at all. So it's a ground or reason clause. It would be equivalent to saying this, because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. Okay, are you with me? So a well-regulated militia being necessary, that means since that is necessary, then something else follows from that, and what it is is the following right of the people has to be maintained. Now, in uh, Bible study, if you come to a uh, participle like this, being, being, you have to determine, and this is a big part of your second year Greek class, right? Uh, have you you've been there? Yeah, of course you have, because you had your exege- exegetical methods and all that. So um, being necessary, you've got to decide what kind of participle is this? How many different kinds in Greek are there? There's like well over a dozen nuances to the participle in Greek. I I didn't look lately. It's been a few years since I've paid attention much to that as far as all the different categories. But ground or reason is very common. And so you have to determine exactly what the authors were trying to get at. It seems clear to me here some kind of ground or reason. Because you need that well-regulated militia, it's necessary to the security of a free state, something has to flow from that necessity. And that right that has to flow from that is that the people who must be ready to defend the security of the free state also necessarily must be able to keep and bear arms. Okay, so in order for them to carry out the function that is listed there, uh, the necessity of the the, uh, well-regulated militia for the free state, the security of that state, then they must be able to keep and to bear arms. Now, I define arms keep and bear, because we have to these days. People don't get the obvious. The arms are firearms, in short, and of a sort that can be effective to defend the security of a free state. We're not talking about cap guns or water guns, okay? Uh, They have to be of the sort that would be suitable to defending the security of a free state. Uh, And then the word to keep. What does to keep mean? There's two nuances that people have suggested, at least that I'm at least recently aware of. To keep was suggested by one of the Supreme Court justices to mean to like store. You probably read the opinion uh, recently, brother, this last week on the Second Amendment ruling, but the idea was that keep means to store. Like you either bear it, carry it, or you keep it, you store it at home. Because you probably don't carry it around your house all the time. I don't think that's correct. I think to keep means to own. Of course, you're going to store it at your home. You're not going to store it off-site in a locked storage locker or something like that. So I think to keep means to own. In other words... The government cannot come and take those away from you so, you, so it, dis, it dispossesses you of them. So to keep, I believe, means to own or possess 
which is a necessity for security. And then finally, to bear means to carry or transport with and or on your person. Again, why? To be able to, at a moment's notice, to be able to provide for the security of a free state. Are you with me so far? So you have to have the means, you have to have it, you have to be able to have it with you to bear it, and you have to have something that's suitable for the function that it's meant to accomplish, which is the security of the free state. In other words, it has to be able to go up against that which would come against the security of a free state. So it has to be commensurate with that kind of power. Um, So the security of the state starts with the security of the individuals within the state, so it can be rightly said that individual self-defense is at the core of the Second Amendment. That's a statement you'll actually find or something similar to it in the recent uh, opinion from the uh, majority opinion from the court, uh, which I think was largely uh, very correct in its reasoning. To hobble the type of firearm so as to be ineffective in comparison to what would be used against the citizen. So in other words, if you, uh, you know, have uh, certain kinds of firearms that could be used against us and you have much less powerful ones than that to defend the security of the free state, that doesn't fit the purpose that is given. Or to prohibit gun or other weapon ownership or to make it illegal to carry the weapon where it may be needed to provide security, all of these restrictions are not permitted to the state based on the text of this Second Amendment, okay? So the Constitution restricts the ability of the state in these areas to, to withhold the, keep, the arms or the keeping or the bearing from its citizens. These would all be in, uh, forms of infringement on the right of the people to defend the security of their persons and property, and thus collectively to defend the security of the free state. The limitation in the Constitution also serves to limit the power of the state against its citizens. History shows very clearly that when a people is disarmed, they are then often subject to horrific abuses of power and death at the hands of the state. Uh, So you disarm a people before you plan to kill them. Communist countries often do this. Um, This was done to uh, the Indians in our own country, disarm them first in certain cases, and then slaughter. The limitation on power imposed by the Second Amendment is very useful because people are depraved. That is a basic Christian teaching, people are depraved. And groups of people gathered into governmental agencies are no less depraved just because people gather into a group, whether it's a corporation or any, any body or any governmental agency, doesn't mean they suddenly become saintly. They actually can become almost worse if there's kind of becomes a pack mentality. But in any case, it's depravity that must be limited. Their power needs to be limited to limit the damage that can be done by their depravity. So the Second Amendment is very important that way. Now, it should be rather obvious that this right is to be protected for individuals, not just corporate militias, since militias are not even common these days. A militia-only interpretation would give, would gut rather, the amendment of its practical protections for the rights of the people. The point is that the people had to keep and bear arms so that they could join together in their militias to protect the security of the state. Now, we've briefly 
ever so briefly address the meaning of this text that is being asked about. Now, how is the Christian to think about this? Does this accord with scriptural teaching? And here's where a couple of us, several texts come in. Now, how, uh, let, me, let me look at it this way. The right of a person to defend himself or herself is present in Scripture. Consider the following, Exodus 22, verse 2. Exodus 22 and verse 2. Why don't we spend a moment to turn our Bibles there. Exodus 22 and verse number 2. This is in a section of Exodus where there's much giving of the law. You remember starting in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are found, and then a number of other laws are given. Exodus 22 verse 2 says, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So we t- I understand this to be referring to a situation of a thief coming into the home of a person and the homeowner strikes them down uh, so, that they, so that he dies. There will be no guilt for his bloodshed. Let me go on and read verse 3 because it helps set the context. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. So he's sold into bond servitude basically in order to pay his debt off. But this gives us kind of two scenarios The first um, scenario is that the homeowner is permitted to defend the security of his family even by taking the life of what I will call a nighttime intruder. And I think verse 2 is the nighttime intruder, but if the sun has risen on him, that's the daytime uh, intruder. The assumption is that the threat to personal safety justifies even homicide, even up to that level of defense. The homeowner would not be guilty of murder in that case. In other words, it would be called what what we call a justifiable homicide. You will notice, though, in verse 3, if the sun has risen on him, then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. And then it goes on to, well, if he doesn't die, then he should make full restitution for what he has stolen. This is a thief, verse 2 has introduced him as. So the difference between the two cases is the daylight. The difference is the daylight. If a thief comes during the day to steal property, then the homeowner taking his life is not justified, and the homeowner would be guilty of bloodshed. I mean, that's what the text says, doesn't it? You've got to take the text at its face value. However, if at night the intentions of the intruder are not well understood, And in the confusion of the situation, the homeowner is given the benefit of the doubt. You with me so far? Got you. I'm not confusing you too much. This mirrors advice that I heard from a police officer once. He said, when people break into a home at night, they do not have good things planned for the residents of that home. And the residents are justified to use deadly force if necessary to protect the lives of the occupants of that home. The general, uh, I guess, rule of thumb is, and I'm not a lawyer, so don't take this to court unless you have to sometime, but uh, you know, if you're in fear of life or great bodily harm, then deadly force is justifiable. On the other hand, if a homeowner has daylight enough to see a thief 
carrying away his big screen TV, very relevant back in the day of Exodus, right, big screen TVs. <laughs> if you see him carrying away your big screen TV, the homeowner is not justified to shoot the thief. That would certainly land the homeowner in jail because his response was disproportionate to the crime. Property crimes do not justify a homicide. You with me? Bake that into your mind, my friends. Property is really not that important. Hey, that's my 65-inch plasma screen, man. You can't take that. Boom. Well, you're going to be without a 65-inch plasma screen for a while because you're going to be in jail. I had somebody, uh, actually I've had some bodies suggest, oh, if they came on my property, I'd just shoot them. I say, well, okay, you go to jail too, you know, be ready for the consequences. Only when death or great bodily harm is likely can deadly force be justified. Property crimes do not merit or justify the death penalty. That's kind of an easy way to remember it. Would that crime justify the death penalty in a court of law, stealing the TV? No, no jury is going to say that justifies homicide. So... uh, Remember, just as an illustration, the men who killed Ahmed Arbery, remember those fellows? What was it in Georgia? What was it? uh, Last year, was it? Last summer or something? They should have learned what I've just said here long before they committed their heinous act against a man who they wrongly, I think, if I'm right here, if I understand correctly, they were wrongly believing him to be guilty of a property crime. He wasn't guilty of any crime. They were wrongly believing him to be guilty of a property crime. But even if he had been guilty of a property crime, they would not have been justified in doing what they did. So they are justly jailed because of what they did now. I mean, those guys, just to put it mildly, were idiots. They should have called the police if they suspected this fellow was a malefactor, so to speak, in King James language, and just let it go. But they didn't, and so they are experiencing the consequences of that now. Now, one would be safe to assume that if the home invader comes in armed with an instrument of death, the homeowner should be able to keep and bear an arm of equal or greater firepower to defend his life. Thus, the Second Amendment is not at all out of accord with biblical teaching. Now, of course, guns did not exist during Bible times. They are the uh, preferred mechanism of choice these days for personal safety and protection because of their ease of use and their, uh, and their power. Uh, however, another deadly weapon did exist in the Bible times, and that was a sword, a sword. Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke 23, uh, sorry, 22, 36. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it and, a, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. I don't take that to be a typo. The pacifist will say, what do you mean Jesus said that? Well, he did say that. And I think he, he, he didn't say it for, you know, just empty words or anything. Here the Lord expressly tells his disciples to acquire a sword. Now, does that sound strange coming from the lips of Jesus? Not if you understand that he's speaking of a new normal for the disciples Previously, and uh, let me go there so I can uh, read it right off for you in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, the Bible says, this is the Lord, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag 
knapsack, and sandals. Did you lack anything? So they said nothing. So see, before, remember when he sent them out two by two, and they went throughout the land of Israel, and they went preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing people and casting out demons and that sort of stuff. He made special provision for them. And they were to carry on with their business, trusting the Lord to provide for them, finding lodging where they were, food and, and, and all of those sorts of things. And they never lacked. Part of that may have been because it was a short-term trip. It wasn't a long, you know, years and years and years on end kind of thing. So he had sent them out with special divine provision. They would be cared for by that providence. But now... He's sending them out again after he will be gone, and they will be out as sheep among wolves. This is the new normal. And so he's really setting the stage now for the Great Commission. You're going to have to use normal means in order. You can't just throw caution to the wind entirely. You can't just forget about your provision. You've got to do the normal things to provide for yourself. While they will try to be harmless as doves, This does not mean that they cannot defend themselves from robbers or murderers. That's what a sword is for. It's not for, well, it's not for show, is it? I mean, you don't simply only wear the sword at, you know, whatever side you wear it on. I haven't worn a sword ever, so I don't know how you do that. But uh, you don't wear it just for show, although the showing of it is a deterrent factor, isn't it? Um. But it's not for offensive use. Forced conversions. You don't use a sword for forced conversions. You don't use a sword for enforcing a Christian law in the places in which you live, although some Christians have done both of those sinful things. The sword is for defensive use. It's most obviously not for show. Like the Roman police, we do not bear the sword in vain. Notice the word bear. There, bear, carry, for purpose of use. You don't just have a gun and not be able to use it. You must be able to use it as well, just as the sword was to be used. If it's carried, it's meant to be used in those situations where it's needed. Now, one objection to this uh, notion that I'm promoting here, and that is that The Second Amendment is consistent, not inconsistent, but consistent with our right to defend ourselves, which is recognized in the Bible and even taught there in these two portions, at least. And I think you can develop a case from others. I think, in fact, the Romans 13 uh, situation is such that I could could add a paragraph about that. I'll just do that right now, in fact. Um, If as is the case here in the United States, there's explicit recognition in the law of people being able to defend themselves, there is a sense in which that falls under the category of Romans 13. The the authority that is in place has recognized that you are permitted to use a firearm or a sword or whatever in order to defend yourself. And so you are in a sense, don't take this the wrong way, okay? I'm not talking about vigilantism here. You're, in a sense, subdeputized by the government to be one of its instruments to restrain evil in the case that evil comes to visit you particularly, and you don't have time to call the fellows that have the uniforms and the hats and the, and the body armor and all that. You know what I'm saying? You are subdeputized in order to be able to defend yourself. And so even under that... Um, rubric of Romans 13, you are covered 
as well as Luke 22.36, as well as Exodus 22.2. Now, an objection, I heard a very well-known evangelical preacher say he would not use a gun against an intruder in his home. Why? Because the criminal presumably needs eternal life and the preacher already has it. If the preacher shoots the invader, the invader goes to hell straight away. If the criminal shoots the preacher, however, the preacher goes to heaven. So he doesn't have anything to worry about. You see the logic of that? I respond to the objection this way. I have more than myself to, quote, worry about in my home. I have a family, a wife, children, perhaps house guests, some of whom may not be destined for heaven yet. I'm charged with their safety. Like Lot, who welcomed the two angels into the city and said, no, I'm not going to allow you to sleep out in the open square because he knew how wicked and vile that city was. He welcomed them into his home in order to protect them from the evil element that was outside. That's Genesis 19, 2 through 8. Also, I feel that I have a moral duty to not only help when I see a person in need where it is safe to help them, but also, if necessary, to assist in the task of restraining evil where it pops up its ugly head. I certainly would rather not have to do that and hope never to have to do so, but if it came down to a question of me or him, I know which one I would lean toward. The innocent homeowner must not feel guilty if he defends himself. It is the criminal intruder who was in the wrong the entire time. I take it then that the Lord could equivalently say, He who has no gun, let him sell his garment and buy one. Does that bring it up to modern application for you? I think so. There's nothing wrong with the Second Amendment, and Christians can support it and defend it wholeheartedly. There's nothing wrong with guns of all sorts and sizes. In this day and age, however, there is something increasingly wrong with people who have access to guns. Notice I'm making a distinction. There's nothing wrong with the physical mechanism. There are many problems today with the human beings who use those physical mechanisms. Witness the Uvalde, Texas school shooting or the many other gun, knife, and bomb crimes committed by mentally disturbed individuals around our land and throughout the world. There was just one in, was it in Norway? Where was it? Somewhere in Europe. Denmark. Thank you. Making new restrictive laws does not solve those human problems. It only shifts them around. What we find most often is in the Uvalde case is a cascade of errors that resulted in tragedy. The young man should never have had access to weapons because he was deeply disturbed. He was mentally incompetent to be responsible with a firearm. He was mentally incompetent to be responsible for almost anything, certainly a firearm. And there are a whole other bunch of errors that I can't even deal with because they were so tragic in the response to that shooting. But in any case, one other point. Let us suppose that the elected officials in this land changed the law to ban guns or certain kinds of guns, or suppose that the Second Amendment were to be repealed. Would that justify an uprising of the gun-owning public? From a Christian standpoint, it would not justify revolution. It would be very undesirable, indeed, to the ongoing of a free people and the security of a free state, and it would be bad, and it would be out of accord with the founding spirit of our country, but if it were passed lawfully, it would be the law of the land, and that law would have to be obeyed. 
There are many people, however, who would dismiss that entirely and say an armed uprising would be the result, and it, it might be. It might well be, but uh, you know that's not something that we can preach from the scriptures. Okay, so that is my answer to the question: uh, What should the Christian think about the Second Amendment? So, any follow-up comments or questions? Something that's been burning in your mind? Yes, first. Yeah, the uh, the question is a long form kind of question having to do with the confusion and mixing of the uh, American uh, rights, so to call, so to speak, and biblical rights. Now, I made a case here that I think the Bible does give us uh, justification for self-defense, and that we can piece together that with the uh, rest of scriptural revelation and support the Second Amendment. We can see how useful it is to limit the depravity of other humans. But there are people who, and by the way, that right to bear arms is nowhere specifically to be found in Scripture, is it? But the right to self-defense is, which would mean that there's some ability that you have, some, I mean, there's always instruments around the house, right, to be able to defend yourself. Um, But the larger picture is that there is a kind of, um, there's kind of a Christian nationalism that uh, is not, it's not the kind that, that the left is talking about today, but there's this, it's been a long-standing kind of thing where you have a, um, a patriotic Christian kind of combination fusion religion, which is not biblical. And you need to be cautious to be able to separate those two things in your mind. Uh, the church should be able to be the church even if we took, if we took this church and plucked it up and transplanted it into some other country in the world, it should be able to work there. That doesn't mean, that that means to me that you're not going to be able to uproot this church if it's got a bunch of patriotic national religion in it, flags, American flags, and things like that. That's not Christianity. That's patriotism, which I appreciate and uphold to a certain extent, but that's not Christianity. So, we have to think, you know, be able to separate categories that way. And that's where people get confused. Um, the, the, there's another reason for the confusion, and that is the Scriptures drove some of these amendments in the Constitution so that the freedom of religion, speech, security of the state, uh, you know, things reasonable, things like that, jurisprudence principles, you know, a trial by jury kind of thing, uh, being able to face your accuser, that sort of stuff that actually, you know, is here but arose also from probably English common law and things, um, that this actually drove some of that. And thank God that it did because today without those um, Bill of Rights, things could be a lot more difficult for us. I mean, you saw how quickly those Bill of Rights were just thrown out the window when COVID came. There's no footnote in the Constitution about churches gathering, not being able to gather during a pandemic. There is none. We did not gather for a couple of months out of respect for the state and for our fellow citizens and to be cautious. But we could well have met and not been in violation of God's law. 
We may have been very displeasing to the secular authorities, but even like here in the state of Michigan, we had perfect, uh, what do you want to say, uh, exception clauses for religious exercise. And we exercised those starting in late May and early June of 2020 and without any twinge of conscience at all. In fact, it was a way for us to stand up and say, look, we're going to obey God rather than men. So um, you have to separate those things in your mind. Very good, very good question. Yes, sir. Misused it. Yeah. Right. Right. They followed, uh, so Drew's comment and question has to do with the Lord himself being faced with those who came with swords and, and spears and things to, to uh, arrest him. And of course, he had to tell Peter to put away the sword because it was not the will of the Father that the Lord defend himself in this particular case. Um, the Apostle Paul, however, shows a different example when he defends himself using his Roman citizenship, just the citizenship card, no sword necessary, to say to the Roman authorities, you can't just beat me uncondemned. I, I deserve a trial and to face the accusers and all that. This is 2,000 years ago. I mean, this is like old news um, that these principles have been well recognized. And uh, so he did defend himself very thoroughly and that was in order to advance the gospel, see? So we have to ask ourselves, how is our conduct going to advance uh, the work of God? And sometimes we'd have to say, no, no sword here. I'm just going to have to take my lumps. And, of course, if it's the state versus the individual, like it was in many cases with martyrs, the power of one individual, even with the sword, is not going to be sufficient to carry out to defend themselves, so... They're just going to have to deal with the consequences as they come. Yes. Um, okay, I, I'm going to try to try to do something here with that question. So the, basically the question started out as, can I define a biblical right versus the definition of a biblical command, and, and do we follow? We certainly follow biblical commands, yes, to gather as a church, to uh, honor those in authority, 
um, and those sorts of things. But what about a biblical right? I think that's a muddied question, uh, an answer, a, 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 how can I say, not a question, a circumstance that's muddied today a lot by this demand for rights. I mean, people are finding rights everywhere, you know, the right to health care, the right to kill a baby that's in the womb, which never existed in the first place, but they're, oh, we've had that right for 50 years, you know. No, you haven't. You've had the ability to sin uh, with a high hand for 50 years, but you haven't had a right. So the, uh, the Bible doesn't actually craft things in terms of rights. Like the idea of rights, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing doesn't come until later on. I mean, there are certain things that derive from the scriptures, like the right to life derives from the truth that God is the one who gives life and who takes life, so man should not do it, just should not take away life. That comes from the, it's implicit in the commandment to not murder, right? But that right to life is itself not absolute because somebody who commits a capital crime forfeits that right to life, right? So they are able to uh, the state is able to take their life legitimately if they've committed that sort of a crime. So that's not absolute. Um, so the Bible doesn't speak in terms of rights. And when there are things that are our privilege or our possession, the scriptural teaching for the Christian is rather at times to give up those privileges or possessions in order to advance the ministry of the gospel. I'm thinking of Paul's idea of Christian liberty. You may have liberties to do certain things or not do certain things, but Paul is saying, like, I can eat that meat sacrificed to an idol, but if it's going to cause somebody to stumble a spiritual value, I am not going to do that. Um, so you might say, well, I have a right to eat meat. I mean, nobody ever talks about that, I guess, today, like the right to eat. Is that a right? I don't know. If a man doesn't work, he should not eat. So does then he have a right to work? Oh, that's another whole area, right to work. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure that I'm coming up with off the top of my head a great answer to the question, but certainly a biblical command is something that is enjoined by God to be done or prohibition, a negative command not to be done, and that must be followed. And the Bible doesn't cast things in terms of rights. Uh, it does recognize certain things. I think this right to self-defense because of the greater principle of God giving life and being the one who takes life and the prohibition against murder that you're able to, you know, defend yourself. So I would say that it recognizes but doesn't like list rights or even almost think that way. That's how it seems to me. But uh, I'm, I know there are people who have thought much more deeply about this than I'm able to in the moments that I have here in the standing on my feet. So I'll have to Pause the answer to the question right there. Anything else? John? Uh huh. Uh, the question is what would justify a revolution? Um, I didn't think about that, John. Do you think there is potentially something that does? I mean, if you, 
the thing is that the human condition over the centuries and millennia has been almost always to exist in a state of uh, servitude to a king or other dictator type of person. That's the normal condition of humanity. Because when you don't have Christianity, which our country, by the way, is rapidly going down that tube, uh, that toilet, if you will, when you don't have that, the only way to maintain law and order is by brute force, right? I, all, I, I will often go back to the example of um, Saddam Hussein in the country of Iraq. And people in our na- you know, nation in the West complained about how he had to deal or how he dealt with the people in his land. I beseech you to consider it from another perspective. If you are having to keep a nation together, a nation which has a significant portion of people of a terroristic mindset, a a Sharia law, cut off the hand, cut off the tongue kind of mindset, how else are you going to keep that people submitted, subdued, than brute force? Can you just talk to them? Diplomacy going to work? So the, 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 the whole non-Western mindset is totally different than what ours is. We live in this, in effect, I mean, it's a large bubble, but it's a bubble. And we need to get the idea in our heads that someday, even in our lifetimes, we could live under the rule of a dictator. Paul did not say it was okay to rebel or cause revolution against the Caesar, even though he was a very wicked individual. Well, <laughs> series of individuals, I should say, but the one that was alive at his time. Yes? Obey the authorities, except for where it it runs counter to the commands of God. So uh, some Christians have made the argument that even the revolution of the United States against the power that that was in Great Britain was not biblically founded. Now it happened. Nothing we can do about that now. What's done is done. Um, and God used it even for his own purposes in the, in the advancement of the gospel and other things around the world and world peace and so on. But there'll come a time when God is pleased to not use this nation for that purpose, and he will, fo- in fact, he is, you see it now. I mean, the, the, uh, the impetus for world evangelism is moving south and, and east and Middle East, and uh, we're dying. We're dying. People that don't know about God in this country. Ridiculous. They should be learning about him in school like they used to. But um, so the conditions for justifying a revolution uh, would be very hard for me to come by given those kinds of examples. Now, in the process of a change from one government to the next, if there's some kind of necessity for you to defend yourself, then I think we go back to the earlier teaching about defending yourself. And there is the, the problem of, well, what if, the, what if the regime that is comes about or is, is set aside by an illegal process? You know, like Second Amendment is not repealed, but they take all your guns away anyway. Then what do you do? I mean, these are tough things that could come to pass in our lifetimes. So... Um, you know, would it be valid for me to get up and preach on a Sunday morning that uh, we need to revolt? We keep preaching the Bible, keep witnessing the gospel, 
keep sharing Christ with people because they need it more now than they than they did. If they need it more, if they needed it before, they really need it now. That's what I'm saying. Culturally, we've gone so far. So. Right. Yes, he respected him. Right. Yes, Daniel himself, uh, the uh, comment is that he was respectful to Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> and uh, didn't foment rebellion. But he did have to obey God rather than men when it came to you know praying and stuff. Yes, sir. Yes, that's a good example. You know, Israel did uh, rebel against their, uh, you know, people. Uh, their, you know, the Moabites or Ammonites or whoever. So there's there's that biblical example that you could look at. Under what? Um, well, then there were times John too when they were told, like by Jeremiah, don't rebel against Babylon because you need to just go there and live and have children and build houses and prosper, so that when it's time for you to come back, you'll be ready to do that. So. They were explicitly commanded, even though they could say, "Well, you know, we don't. We need to have a king. We need to do that to obey God. We need to be in Jerusalem. We need to be." No, you forfeited that when you blew it, and you worshipped idols all that time. And uh, God's keeping His promise to send you off the land and uh, let the land have its its Sabbaths. So, a lot to think about. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now Jansen comments about Israel being somewhat unique, so we have to be careful about applying everything that happened to them, you know, just kind of lock, stock, and barrel to us. They were a spiritual and uh, national uh, thing, if you will, not just uh, like any of the other nations of the world. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, the judges were appointed by God, and like in the case of Gideon, appointed by God in order to use him to defeat the Midianites. Is that right? Midianites, yes, got it. Okay, interesting. So God appointed them to do that. But then he appointed others like the Chaldeans to come and defeat the uh, nation of Israel. And he appointed Edom to do that to them. And then when Babylon and and Assyria and Edom overdid their, you know, overzealously executed their assigned tasks, and God punished those nations for what they had done. So he overthrew them. God sets the boundaries, uh, the places of man's existence, Acts 17 says, and yeah, he moves the heart of the king like uh, with his hand. So yeah, that's interesting. Well, how much you can get into by just asking a question about the Second Amendment. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, I probably have well enough tipped my hand, but I will say that I am an ardent supporter of the Second Amendment. I think it is a useful legal construct in order to limit the depravity of the governing bodies and also to provide for the 
self-defense uh, and security of the free state and its individual people. So uh, I think that it needs to be protected. I am uh, ironic. It's ironic to me that you have the, a statement, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and the left wants to take that away. And you can find no such statement about abortion, but they want to demand that that be there. So you have a right explicitly mentioned, which is denied, and a right which is very shadowy. I use that advisedly, that term, shadowy, penumbra-y. You know what I mean? Uh, And it's very, very, its basis in the Constitution is very weak. The legal reasoning behind it is well understood by legal scholars, even left on the left, to be very weak uh, and very unwell, uh, and yet people want to demand that that right be there. You know, I thought about this question, too, this week. Some constitutional scholar will have to answer this for me. I'll ask you this question. Is murder mentioned in the Constitution? Does anybody know? You know, brother? There's, there's, there's a... There's some provision, I think, for like treason and something in, uh, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors and stuff like that. But does is the crime of murder mentioned in the Constitution? Not that you can think of. So, is there a right to murder? <laughs> it's not mentioned in the Constitution. What's that? Google it. Right? Yeah. Right. We're going to trust Google. Right. Uh, I think I'll read the text of the, of the document myself. But, uh, uh, you know, if, if, the, if, the, if the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court has cast this issue back to the states, which, by the way, is not any cure-all. <laughs> it only just moves the problem somewhere else, but at least it's better, we feel, than it was before. But if they've cast that problem to the states, guess where the problem of murder is dealt with in our system? Of governance. What's that? It's a state issue. Criminal issues like that are dealt with in the states. The federal government was not constructed in order to take those police powers away from the states. The states had those powers. The states have sovereign powers in certain areas which have been, which have been slowly arrogated to the federal government over the course of time but properly those things in a federal system should be left at the states. The federal government doesn't have to do anything about murder. The states are concerned with that. So by, by throwing the abortion issue back over the wall to the states, they're just putting it back where it always was and where it is a, an issue of either criminality or not. I mean, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to vote on a, on a constitutional amendment in the state of Michigan, most certainly in November, that would encode this uh, as a right, this abortion as a right for the people in the state of Michigan. I'm very disheartened, by the way, when I read that anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of the population in the United States believe that abortion should be okay in some, at least in some cases. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about um, the kind of criminal cases, incest and rape and all that sort of stuff. That's a separate issue just in some, you know, up to some time of gestation or whatever. And I just am thinking, we are up against it, folks. We are up against a, a, a tsunami of ungodly thinking that people could be so confused to think 
that it's okay to kill a baby. There's a time to choose. Yes, and it's before you make the baby. That's the time for choosing. Yes. The, the thinking is so muddled today that people could think that way is just sad, just very sad. Yeah, somewhere between 60 and 80, depending on this. So don't just quote the 80, but remember 60 to 80. But yeah, deception, that's correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's odd. There's, uh, there's, it's bad, it's bad. But see, w- w- this is what the scripture teaches about when it talks about the darkened mind. Yeah, see, the mind cannot function properly. Ben, you have a comment, and then we've got to close. Yes, and, and actually, uh, I believe that it would be perfectly legitimate for this, the Supreme Court to say that the, from, the Bill of, from the Declaration of Independence, we've recognized that the basic rights of life and liberty, and they call the pursuit of happiness, uh, are uh, recognized in our law and need to be upheld. But they're waffling on the issue because of the issue of life and potential life and the whole, you know, controversy about it, but nobody's willing to kind of stand up and say, this is wrong, period. There is a right to life here. So, um, yeah, anyway, it's a discouragement because people so, so poorly think. But, you know, uh, this is just another one of those things that adds into the equation that people are without excuse. They know they know when a three-month-old, three-month gestation, I'm talking about, baby is taken apart piece by piece and put on the sterile stainless steel uh, tray in pieces. That's a person. That is a person. And that's what abortion does. I know it's disgusting. I know it's not supposed to be talked about. Uh, that's what it is. And I've often said people that support abortion should have to go see one be done and participate and see how they feel about it after that. Yes? Mm-hmm. There's no excuse. That's right. There's no excuse for... Right. Yeah, there's, there's no excuse for it. Like I say, the time for choosing is before you make the baby. You're free to choose. And I understand they're, they're going to say, what about, you know, what Christy said, what about this case? What about that case? What about this? Like... Less than one percent of cases. Let's we'll deal with those cases. Let's deal with the ninety-nine first, and then with that foundation, let's go to these others. So, um, you never should punish the little person for the sins of its parents, right? So that includes that. That kind of solves all those other special cases. There are the cases of ectopic pregnancies in the life of the mother. If mom dies, then both die, and you've got to try to preserve as much life as possible. That's the, that's the kind of 
rule of thumb that I use when, when helping people. And if there was a case that somebody came to me and said, hey, we've got this problem, we'd have to think through it, pray about it, look at the, the data, uh, see what the uh, experts say on it and all of that. But this is, uh, these, it's pretty much, it's pretty easy actually. It's pretty easy if you just think clearly about it. Uh, you don't punish the little life for the sins of its parents. Uh, you may punish the parents, you know, the man who rapes or whatever, uh, but certainly not the child. So, and, um, and, and we need to stop our people. We need to teach our people that, our women especially, that bearing children is not a punishment. Bearing children is a blessing. It's difficult, but sometimes blessings are difficult, aren't they? It's a blessing. It's not a burden, and we should do everything we can in order to support the, pro- the promotion of life. And if that means we have to help, do some more help for the more, parent, the more moms who are going to have kids now that can't have an abortion, praise the Lord, you know. So we need to work in that way. We need to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to think about this uh, scriptural matter and the matter of uh, secular law together and how we should think about them. And I pray that you will, will indeed help us to be clear thinkers and uh, righteous and holy thinkers, not um, muddled, muddied, and, um, and darkened in our minds. And pray that you'll help us to bring good words and good questions and good challenges to those that we know that aren't so clear thinking to be able to help them in our workplaces and schools and so on. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good night. God bless you.